0: What's up everybody, good to have you back, this is the first episode of the second season and today I'll be talking with campaigning expert Julius van der Laar. (music) After finishing high school, Mr. van der Laar had the chance to go to the United States and play D1 basketball at a university in South Carolina. After graduating, he had the chance to work with former President Barack Obama. During the 28th and 2012 election campaign, he worked as one of the main GOTV organizers which overviewed and coordinated the regional get-out-the-vote effort. Mr. Funderlaw was responsible for the state of Ohio which was one of the key but also critical states during that time. After the two highly successful campaigns of former president Barack Obama, Mr. Law brought back his experience to Europe. There, he helped multiple companies as well as political parties to be successful. On top of that, Mr. La is a political commentator for the top news channels here in Germany, and he really knows what he's talking about when it comes to political campaigning or politics in general. Here are the three things that you are gonna get out of the podcast from Mr. Van der Laat today. First of all, he claims that passion is the foundation for everything great. Because when they started the Obama campaign from zero, the only thing they relied on was fascination, but also passion, and oh boy, make them very successful in the end second of all if you want to argue politics with with someone who has the complete opposing opinion in you start to talk about the same values that you guys share and try to make a connection and go on from there last but not least mr van teaches you how to convince others that your ideas are right he claims that you need to answer two questions why me and why now if you have good answers for that, you're more likely to get your word out of there and mobilize others of your political thoughts or your beliefs in general. Mr. Fund der Law was someone I desperately wanted to have on the podcast. And that is why I started the second season with him. Please, guys, show him some love. It was an amazing time in Berlin. Hope you guys going to get the most out of the podcast and enjoy the heck out of the podcast. Let's go. What's up, everybody? Today I'm talking with Julius van der Laar, um, a campaigning expert used to be a part of um, Mr. President Obama um, during his um, campaign in 2008 and 2012. Do the Americans say Julius? Julius? How do they pronounce They go by Julius. Julius? Julius. They go with Julius. Well, um, I already mentioned it in the intro and we talked a little bit about it before the podcast. Um, you studied in the States after um, the German high school, you went to the States. Um, could you give us some major reasons why you did that or some motivations why you wanted to go to an American college? I, mean, I think we both share a
1: passion and uh, just right. a general uh, excitement about the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, first time I went to the US with my parents, um, they took me on a west coast swing. Like, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to be able to go with my parents and uh, just to explore the West Coast when I was mm-hmm. 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, came back several times, spent a year in uh, Houston, Texas as a foreign exchange student. H-Town. Um, <laughs> that's right. And um, so, you know, there was always a, you know, great excitement, uh, sort of a fascination with the United States of America. And it was very different compared to Germany, of course. And, um, you know, and then I think what did it for me was later when I started playing basketball Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the 90s with the Dream Team, Michael Jordan. Oh, yeah. um, You know, there was general fascination with with America, with basketball. And uh, when I started playing, you know, professional basketball over here in Germany Mm -hmm. and I got the Uh, opportunity to go to the United States to play college basketball there I mean those
0: dream come through well just and especially just basketball has so much to do with the American culture in general I mean I think it's everyone's everyone's dream here in germany who who plays a little bit of ball who right. to go overseas and right. play there because because right. you probably can compare one of the best leagues here right. to 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 just regular colleges there because the level is just right. so much better i mean you right. see it in the olympics right. okay. but, i mean <laughs> there's always one winner in there that, that, that's true but you know,
1: growing up like I would, I would stay up all night to watch the nba finals mm-hmm. Not every night you know mm-hmm. begging my parents for. Be able to stay up yeah. for the All Star Game, and then so of course it was my dream to go to the United States yeah. play basketball there in some of the greatest gems in in the, in the in the country, and nice. you know of course the goal was the NBA. Uh, I only made it to college, um, but but still those are right of a lifetime. Yeah. And I'm so
0: grateful for it. And yeah, you already mentioned it. You went. You got a you got a scholarship for a one school in right. South Carolina. That's right. How did you get there? Um, so I played
1: in a boarding school. Uh, close to Ulm in Germany and mm-hmm. we took several trips over to the United States to play summer league and oh, AAU yeah. basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you play in pretty much empty gyms, uh, but in front of a bunch of recruits. And so they'd be like That's true. 30, 40, 50 uh, college scouts sitting there with their clipboards and video cameras. So and give it, you give it your all. Huh? It's, it's an wow. auction, right? It's an audition and you go out there and you try to give it your best. And then, you know, uh, finally some coaches called and said, well, we'd love to have you on our squad." That's, and, um, that's pretty cool. So I a letter of intent and went over to South Carolina, not really knowing what to expect. But, uh, you know, you come over and um, uh, it is completely different from, you know, professional sports in Germany. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything is thought out. Yeah, you get all the gear. You have full academic support. Yeah. Um, you go out there and you have a professional uh, sports experience on top of living in one of the most beautiful places in the earth mm. uh, in Greenville, South Carolina on a beautiful campus. That's so, true. And, know, it's, and it's, th-
0: just in general, the sports spirit is so much better right. in America. Like, everything is louder. Everything is, everyone, yeah, just works their butt off to be right. to w- successful in sports. I would argue that,
1: um, soccer players are probably be oh, yeah. uh, right. I mean Bundesliga of course is yeah. huge over here yeah. but when you when you look <laughs> at youth sports or university sports I mean of course it doesn't compare yeah. um, we'd go over to football games over at Clemson University mm-hmm. and there'd be a 100,000 people to watch 18, 19, 20 year old guys insane. play
0: football that is and insane. I mean of
1: course that doesn't compare to anything over here
0: yeah and um, you decided to study political science is that That's right? right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah I studied political science a uh, uh, always had a thing for politics, mm-hmm. um, but I, st- I studied political science and communication studies. And of course, um, this was during a you know much different time. Uh, I'm yeah. way older than you. Uh, yeah. I will say at this point, um, uh, it hurts me a little bit. But uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I, c- I came over to the United States uh, and played college basketball in mm-hmm. 2003. So this was during the uh, George W. Bush presidency. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, I mean, it was the war in Iraq. It was Afghanistan. It was yeah. George W. Bush and, you know, leading the country into a major economic yeah. crisis. So that was the time when I was studying political science. And, of course, that was also the time when Barack Obama entered the, the national political uh-huh. sphere. Uh, so it was a tremendous time for change and a great climate for politics and to get involved in
0: I, I can imagine the, the country was also... Uh, really polarized because of 9-11, obviously. And, um, especially at that time, must have been a really interesting time to go over there and study um, political science. Especially in the South, right? Yeah.
1: I went to South Carolina, one of the more conservative states. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, and as a European to come over there from a pretty liberal Germany, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and of course this is not 2019. This mm-hmm. is 2003. So uh, much different politics. Um, you know, same-sex marriage was unthinkable at that point, yeah, um, especially in the south. And so, uh, completely different setting. But uh, there was
0: also a hunger for change, and I think mm-hmm. that resulted from you know those eight years of George W. Bush, of course. Well, that was actually my next question. So, uh, thank you a lot for mentioning that. (laughs) Um, Talking about the culture change, the culture shock you you experienced, um, you said it, you were raised liberal in in, in Germany, kind of like a small town there. um, And then you come to South Carolina. What's like... Are there any like experiences that stand out the most? When you said, "Well, I never had any experience like this when it comes to culture understanding." Or I mean, there were several debates, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Either in the dorm room, mm-hmm. with friends in the dining hall, right. or you know, in in our politics classes, right? right.
1: When, when you talked about uh, the death penalty, mm-hmm. which is just unthinkable over here in Germany, um, exactly. And you know, this week uh, Donald Trump is deciding to uh, reestablish uh, death penalty uh, mm-hmm. on a federal level, right? So, um, or abortion, um, which is, of course, still contentious, um, uh, but on a different whole different level yeah. uh, in, yeah. in, in the South, especially, uh, when it comes to race relations. Um, all those issues that are boiling over now in the Trump presidency as well, uh, of course, were a theme and a topic of discussion back then, but I remember distinctly it was um, during the time when the Abu Ghraib scandal came up and, and Rumsfeld was uh, the Secretary of Defense and there was tremendous torture happening mm. um, uh, especially in the Middle East um, and you know we would debate over torture and yeah. waterboarding. hoarding yes. and uh, I remember distinctly it was uh, an argument that we had during class a debate I should say um, and I said well torture you just can't do it you know I mentioned the Geneva Convention all those different aspects and then finally one of my uh, classmates, who was uh, um, you know at least arguing that torture was something that uh, should be taken into account um, in order to combat terrorism, said, "Well, Julius, you just don't understand it. You weren't here on nine 11 mm-hmm. And I remember how that stuck. Right? I mean, those just you know you, you don't understand it because you weren't here on nine eleven, and that sort of explained to me how emotional politics can be, and how, how strong that experience can be going through that. Uh, now, I will, of course, continue to argue that uh, torture and waterboarding is yeah. never okay. But well, i you know, Of course. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think that's even disputable. But, um, but I think it sort of showed to me how, you know, when people talk about polarization, mm-hmm. that it's not just party or Trump or Democrats. There's emotional skin in the game right mm-hmm. I mean people who went through 9-11 who were maybe in New York City that day yeah. I mean, uh, you can be of course part of 9-11 and completely against torture but I can also see uh, how other people might think about yeah. it and I think that's what we need in order to get back from that polarized discourse is to be able to be empathetic and put ourselves yeah. in the shoes of others and I think that's what oftentimes is lacking
0: in the political discourse as we see it today mm-hmm. so politics has been your thing um, that's what you said and then well college came to an end after right. hopefully four beautiful years, right? Um, what was the plan then? Mm-hmm. Did you have any idea what you want to do? Um, where do you want to go? I mean the plan was 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 straightforward uh, it was four years
1: of NCAA basketball and then to go to the, uh, uh, to, the w, uh, to the to the NBA. I mean uh, actually I was planning to go to the Lakers um, becoming the new Dirk. Th- that's right <laughs> um, unfortunately, however, I tore my ACL three times and um, And at least that's the way I tell myself that story, is that I would have made it to the Lakers. Um, I would have been in that All-Star game, uh, except, of course, uh, those ACL injuries. Uh, Joking aside, (laughs) uh, I think it was... Decently talented, uh, but there's okay. no NBA potential. So, um, you know, after I took my ACL the third time, uh, the career was over. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was able to focus, you know, even more time on studying, uh, getting more involved in politics. And it was also uh, in 2007 when Barack Obama, in February 2007, announced his presidency you know, or his campaign for presidency. And uh, I knew
0: right then that I wanted to join his campaign. Mm-hmm. And, um, was there like a trigger, um, a trigger event or action when you said, "I think this is this guy's great. I want to work for him."
1: Right. I, I mean, I remember distinctly the 2004 convention speech. Um, mm-hmm. John Kerry was the president, about me. That was an epic party. speech. To that was a, was a tremendous speech when Barack Obama came yeah. in and said, "You know, we're talking about polarization today." Back then, in 2004, uh, Obama gave that speech where he said, "It's not the red states, it's not the blue states, it's the United States of America." Mm-hmm. And, and that spoke to me because I saw that polarization on campus and the conversations, you know, what we just talked about. And uh, when I heard that, I thought, this guy's special. Um, you know, of course, being European, I was against the war in Iraq. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that was a big topic of discussion over here sure. in Germany as well. And then Barack Obama was one of the only candidates, uh, other than Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, and the others, who was actually took a strong stance in the Senate against the war in Iraq. Okay. And so there were a lot of reasons why I was drawn to Barack Obama. Maybe also because he was playing basketball, right? mm-hmm. and was Oh, yeah, a, he was so passionate about it. Right. I mean, there's so much passion in this campaign. So when he announced, you know, I signed up that very first day for his newsletter. Uh, they asked uh, a couple of weeks later, well, we're looking for students who are looking okay. to start a campus group, uh, students for Obama on campus. Okay. And so I just replied. I was like, yes, we're going to start a chapter. So there's a couple of us uh, on campus registering voters. Uh, Putting up posters and that kind of stuff. So, you know, it was a great way to start in politics. Uh Um, And I had the advantage, of course, that South Carolina was one of the early primary states. So the campaign started investing Mm -hmm. heavy resources early on. And um, I remember when Barack Obama first came to South Carolina, uh, he was over in Orange County, um, Orangeburg. um, And uh, for one of the presidential debates, you know, I got a chance to meet him. I thought he was a great guy. And that's Mm -hmm. when the campaign offered
0: me a job as a field organizer on the campaign. There's there's one question I have. I was thinking about that on the trip here to this beautiful city of Berlin. Um, well, you were obviously a very young guy at that age, uh, right. at that time, and, and, but you still get an offer from the president basically. And, and I, I really feel like in America, they have a, such a high appreciation of, uh, of young people, while here in Germany, it's kind of like the other way around. Like they, they, they think like younger people, they have like a, like a lack of experience, while Americans see younger people, especially like college graduates, more um, of very innovative people. Right. So, was that maybe a reason Obama really focused on getting young people um, on his side? Um, I mean, I would
1: love for that story to be that the president sought me out okay. uh, as a uh, tremendous strategist. Well, let's put it uh, that way. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think that's that was the case. Uh, remember, that Obama campaign, when when Barack Obama started out, hardly anyone had ever heard his name, right? Mm-hmm. There was Hillary Clinton out there who had, you know, almost universal name recognition. Right. Um, every... Expert, every pundit said Hillary Clinton would most certainly win that campaign, and Barack Obama was nice, like afterthought, but Mm -hmm. he would never be president, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Let alone be the Democratic nominee. And so, in the beginning, it was pretty much like all hands on deck, right? Uh, There was no money, there was no recognition. It was Um, just passion. It was just passion. And so, um, you know, a campaign needs to be fueled by passion. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also what we saw in the 2016 campaign that, you know, people were like, Well, we hope that Hillary Clinton will beat Donald Trump, but there was no intense passion behind her campaign. And so I think what Barack Obama understood and his campaign understood that you need that movement. And the movement, I'd argue, was even there before Obama was there. Mm -hmm. People were tired of Bush, people were frustrated with the wars, people were frustrated with the financial crisis. And then, of course, Barack Obama came in and said, we need a change. Mm -hmm. And boy, me and, and other people just saw the opportunity to be part of something historic. Not him being the first African-American president, Mm -hmm. but to enter in a new era of politics. And it was exciting, it was sort of revolution, and uh, it was great to be part of it. So, um, coming back to your point about Germany and the US, um, that movement that propelled Barack Obama into office, I think, was way more than the candidate. Mm -hmm. Obama was able to take that energy and put it into the tremendous campaign. But we were out there campaigning um, uh, even before Obama came yeah, in, yeah. right? And so, uh, it's true though that... Yeah, you guys we, set the foundation basically. Yeah. Well, you know, millions of people across the country, mm-hmm. right? And, but I argue that it's true that um, a lot of uh, times, at least what I see in Germany, it is of course about hierarchy. It's of course about how long have you been here? What are your credentials? and in a campaign setting, which I'd argue is sort of the ultimate startup, Um yeah, It's true, <laughs> sure, it's cool, uh, right? I mean, cool. we started with about 20, 30 people and grew that campaign to 3,500 in, in just a year, right? Wow. So it's all hands on deck, and it's, of course, well, whoever proves him or herself to be effective, the campaign will hand more responsibility mm-hmm. to them. And so I think, of course, on the one hand, it's desire and need from the campaign to bring in a lot of people just to be <clears> able, <throat> able to help with the heavy lifting, the other aspect, of course, is to the, you know, who can actually do something and give more power, more resources to that person. And that's different,
0: uh, at least to a
1: lot of organizations uh, and cultures that I've seen over here.
0: So you started You started working for um, uh, former President Obama. What was your job? I was a field organizer.
1: I mean, I, I started at the very bottom of the ladder, right? Yeah. Um, I was in Pickens County, um and my job was to knock on doors, to organize volunteers, uh, to make calls to potential volunteers, uh, meet with them, get them on board, um, and build a grassroots movement uh, that would be that would, that would help us and allow us to talk to as many people as possible, mm-hmm. in order to get the good message out that Barack Obama was a viable candidate. Mm-hmm. So everything was focused in Iowa on the Iowa caucuses, in New Hampshire in the New Hampshire primaries, and of course in South Carolina on the. Uh, South Carolina primaries and so we would go out every day to try to identify uh, supporters um, uh, voters and then of course try to turn them out on election day in order to get those
0: So uh, that's basically what's called retail politics right? Retail politics right and we'd
1: go everywhere churches supermarkets football games uh, and you know just knock on doors Mm -hmm. and you know throughout that process I started out knocking on those doors myself and then figured out well if I can recruit 20 volunteers to each knock on 100 doors a day you know uh, we actually have much broader reach mm-hmm. and so uh, I think this is the organizing model that propelled the Obama campaign uh, to whole new spheres which is sort was of like a f- franchise well of course franchises were a snowball model if yeah. you will oh, but, uh, yeah, but it worked of course because or it, there was a desperate need for that model to work because we didn't have any money we couldn't just go on the air and you yeah. know throw out a bunch of television ads yeah. Uh, we had to do that bottom-up organizing, and it worked. And so, after we won South Carolina, and we had that very much hands-on job, um, I went through 12 different uh, states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Indiana, a bunch of different primaries, and, you know, managed to step up in the campaign with each state that passed. And then, in the general election, I was uh, not named uh, Youth director uh, in the state of Missouri, which was a tremendous experience. Because if you remember, back in 2008, right, the digital game was completely new to politics, mm-hmm. right? Facebook sure. had just been around. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I remember there when wasn't I was in college, YouTube. Well, right, know. YouTube had just started off. Yeah, um, yeah I think it. Was. And you know, you of course grew up with Facebook. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm old enough to say that when I started college, Facebook was not around, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, we had to figure out everything else who was in that classroom without Facebook. And mm-hmm. so it's unimaginable today, but um, back then all those tools were new. And I think we had a candidate who was able to push that message through those can- uh, channels but it was our job to figure out how to actually use it in an effective manner. And so that was just a fantastic time to be in politics and be in sort of a startup environment. We got to be able to experiment with Facebook, with YouTube, with Twitter, all those different channels. Yeah, well, let's get it, that message out.
0: It's kind of fun to see you describe Facebook as a blessing. Um, well, actually, today, especially when we're looking at politics, for me, it's more of a curse. Right. Cause, absolutely. Because right now, what's happening on social media when it comes to when it comes to politics? I'll I'll I'll, I'll name Twitter. I name Facebook, Instagram. Right. Name anything you want. Right. Um, it is just that endless discussion, debates with people you can't really. Talk about, there's no progress at all, right. nothing good happens on these social media accounts when it comes to like right. political arguments. Right. And it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to see that switch coming from um, this major success factor right. to this really unnecessary thing where there's no, you know, good I mean, stuff happening anymore.
1: I'd argue for us, uh, back in 2008, it was primarily an organizing tool. Right. I mean, there were so many young people out there, and we had to figure out how to reach them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, landline telephones, the classical way of communicating back then, just didn't work. And so, we're able to tap into it, and of course, it was much cheaper back then yeah, uh, sure. to use those uh, tools. And then, of course, if you describe 2008 versus 2012, you know, the media landscape tr- switched tremendously. And then 2016, of course, the polarization, you talk about the filter bubbles, uh, and now in 2019 uh, and course I'd argue that there's hardly any difference anymore uh, in the United States or Mm. in Germany um, you know where the conversation is just so polarized you don't come out of your liberal or conservative circles anymore Uh, you see the stuff that your friends post and you stay in the same circle and the same cycle over and over again so I think what politicians need to figure out when it comes to digital is how to actually break out of that filter bubble Mm. um, and how to shift the conversation back to you as a supporter, mm-hmm. whether it's climate change or whether it's politics, doesn't matter how you can actually engage your friends, mm-hmm. um, and um, and I think that's what the Obama campaign figured out again in the early ages of social media and politics, and we need to figure out that again uh, in in twenty nineteen and twenty twenty yeah. uh, because frankly,
0: um, well, the other side there's no I'm way around the other it side as 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 well. they yeah. do figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, going a little bit back to. Your work. Um, you said you worked in Pickens County, super conservative area. Right. Um, imagine myself in the in the position. I'm I'm a German guy who who's not even allowed to, to vote right. in America. Right. Right. I'm knocking on the door. Very conservative guy opens right. the door and asks me, "Hey, what do you want?" I'm like, right. "I'm here to talk about President Obama." Sure. Uh, and and like my question for you is, how do you? Convince someone who has the completely opposing opinion, right. um, especially when you're not even allowed to vote. Like, right. are there any tactics? Are there any approaches? Right. Um, uh, any advice you have for people that are struggling, maybe in the same situation?
1: I would argue that there's no silver bullet. There's mm-hmm. no script that you can use. If you're yeah. a staunch Republican, yeah. you just walk up to the door and you do some magic. At least it wouldn't work. In <laughs> the end, like, that doesn't work. And that's not how politics should work. Yeah. Um, you don't. Know, there are different ways. You can just come with your five point plan and say, "Well, Barack Obama or you know Joe Biden or wherever you want to, Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. you know they have got this great five point plan on the economy, on healthcare, on migration. That's also, so I don't think you change any minds. Hmm. I think what you do need to do is, and we talked about this earlier, is to try to put yourself in the shoes of others. And all of a sudden, politics doesn't need to be national anymore. Yeah, you need to figure out where to connect on an individual base. So. If you go to Pickens County, or you're in Arizona, mm. um, and you walk down the street, you know, mm. people care pretty much about the same things. They want That's their right. kids to be able to do a little bit better than they did themselves. Mm. Right? Mm. Uh, they want opportunity. They want, um, you know, safety and security. You know, yeah. basic human needs. Yeah. And I think in politics, this is what we should focus on, and we should tell people, you know. Why do I support the candidate? Yeah. Um, and this is what, what, what I did. You know, I talked about the Iraq war. Mm. And all of a sudden people will tell me, well, my son has been in Iraq uh, for a very long time and I don't see the purpose of him being there anymore. Mm. And this would be Republicans saying it, mm. right? And so it's a question of, you know, where are our shared values? It's not so much about politics or policy. Of course, that's in the end what makes yeah. a difference. but right. If you want to connect with someone, start with the values and mm. talk about why you support someone, why it's important for you to, you know, tackle climate change head on. Mm. And you know, you'll find that conservatives want their kids to have a future, not in a overheated uh, country or mm. cities, um, you know, just like Democrats do. Yeah. And that's the same is true whether you live in Berlin or in Munich or in Stuttgart. Mm-hmm. And whether you vote for the Conservatives or the Democrats or the Liberals. So I think that's where we should start talking about politics. It shouldn't be so much about a party or about a candidate. Mm-hmm. It should be about values.
0: And I think this is how, the level
1: you should engage people on.
0: Um, so, basically, what you what you were saying is you, you kind of became a, a part of their communities. You said you attended churches, football games. That? I mean, I
1: was fully integrated. Um, let's be very clear. Yeah. I didn't spend any time at the International House on campus. Um, okay. yeah. You know, I, from, from day one, um, I wanted to become as close to, you know, I wanted South Carolina to be... As close to home as it, as, mm-hmm. as it possibly could. And I would say to my parents when I would get back on the plane in Frankfurt, flying back over after the summer was over to, yeah. to Gringo, I would say, I'm going home because I felt when I was living in Gringo, South Carolina, I felt that I was home. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I was, I was part of the community. I mean, uh, friends would invite me over to the Fourth of July barbecue in North Carolina. It was great. Yeah, um, that's you great. Know, we go, we go yeah. to church together, and so yeah. um, I didn't. I never felt like, and nobody
0: ever made me feel like I'm foreign. Yeah, you know. But also, when you were like working for Obama, like the way yeah. you convinced the people is like basically by be, by somehow becoming or adapting to um, their communities, and then trying to argue from that. Exactly, that and, and and I think what's important, or at least what was important to me, and I think why we're able to be effective
1: is that i never had the sense that i was playing a role or that i was pretending to adapt i was fully adapted mm-hmm. and you know frankly uh, in 2008 with the global crises that were happening you know, you mentioned the wars and the financial crisis i think obama was way bigger than just a national candidate you know germans put their hopes in obama when he came to berlin in the campaign of yeah. 2008 um to the that Ziga was a big Ziga event. Ziga Ziga. event, yeah. I mean, I we're that. sitting in Missouri watching that. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe 15,000, 20,000 would show up. Yeah. Well, over 200,000 yes. showed up for that event. Insane. So, Insane. you know, A lot of people from around the world put their hope and trust in Obama. And so I think uh, his candidacy went way beyond just a national message. Mm-hmm.
0: But the world was in disarray. And I think he had answers to, to address that. Yeah. Um, leads me to my next question. So so we're doing sure. that is great, man. Yeah, you said he was a he was obviously a character, he was very successful, especially in foreign countries, uh, in European countries. Still is, right? Or I think still it, is like eighty
1: yeah. percent of Germans would vote for him to be Chancellor right now if they yeah.
0: had that choice. Oh <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone wants to have a beer with a once in a while, you know. He's a wise guy, man. Like he's he's chilled as well, like he seems super nice. Just I mean, from looking at some videos, or like when he plays ball, or I don't know, gives some hand f- high fives right. to uh, to some people, some workers there. Um, can you think of any other factors why Obama was so successful besides the fact that he was just a really good personality?
1: Um, I think this is true for for any campaign, which is that any successful campaign will always be an answer. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that you, know, you can't just come out and say, I'm running for president. Every candidate out there, you know, again, whether it's Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Joe Biden, any of the other you know, Kanye West. 80, uh-huh. 80 people that are running for the Democratic nominee, <laughs> or, or Donald Trump, they all need to be able to answer two questions, which and the first question is, of course, why me? And mm-hmm. the second question is, why now? Right? I mean, you're on that stage, and we see it with the Democrats right now, who are on stage. Uh, at those debates, mm-hmm. I mean, it takes guts to get up there and say, "I am the best person positioned to lead this country." You are three hundred million people, and you say nobody can do it better than I can. So it takes guts. Yeah, you better have a good response. <laughs> but you got to have an answer to yeah. why me and why now? And I think Barack Obama brought something to the table where he had a very, very clear answer: why him, why now, why not Joe Biden, why not Hillary Clinton, why not all the other mm-hmm. candidates who are on stage with him? And so you've got to be able to answer that. But again, a campaign is an answer uh, to a question. And I think the general mood after eight years of George W. Bush was, we need a change. And Hillary Clinton wasn't able to make that argument yeah. that she is truly the candidate of change. Barack Obama was. And so I think he was able to draw that distinction. On top of that though, um, as you mentioned, he is someone who can not only able, he's not only able to answer on a, um, you know, policy level yeah, uh, and articulate the change that he actually wants to bring about in the Senate and, and, and through legislation but he was also able to ignite a fire uh, mm. oh, and, yes. and a movement oh, yes. and I think that's oh. just
0: as important in the campaign great as having the right
1: answers yeah. on a policy level.
0: Yeah. So, talking about that, Donald Trump and Obama, they're like, two, they're promoting two different agendas, political agendas, for sure. They are very different. I agree. Um, especially personality wise yep. but still um, you could figure out some similarities between those those two guys they are both characters they're both seeming to address a certain topic which needs to be addressed within the American society like where do you see some similarities between Trump and, and, and Obama even though they might might be so different in right. first place? I have a hard time comparing Barack Obama to Donald Trump just well, it just, it's hard, it just yeah. feels feels difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a well from a campaigning expert standpoint. Like, what yeah, is some from major that, right. stu- like, like stuff they're doing right when it comes right. to campaigning? I mean,
1: y- you know, Barack Obama on the one hand is a very thoughtful, um, you know, person who thinks everything through to the last bit, whereas Trump, you sometimes get the, get the sense that you know he just takes mm. it to Twitter and, and starts a international starts uh, crisis. <laughs> so. You know, from a from that perspective, I find it hard to compare those two. Uh, what I will say is, you know, again, Barack Obama came after eight years of George W. Bush. And he, I'd argue that Barack Obama was pretty much the complete opposite of Bush, right? Right. And I'd say that Trump, again, was a new turning point in American politics, and he broke with the last eight years. So it's sort of that pendulum that swings to the other direction that we've seen so many times, you know... Uh, after Carter, after Bush Sr., after all those different candidates and presidencies, you always see the other, t- uh, other side uh, come out in you know, a much greater force. So um, I'd say that that certainly has a similarity, but the way they handled the, the office of the president, the, uh, the way they handled themselves internationally, um, I think Trump mostly broke with norms Mm -hmm. which, of course, can reflect something refreshing and, of course, was one of the main arguments that he made during the 2016 election. Um, But other than that, I find it hard to compare both of them from a values perspective, from a public appearance perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only thing that I'd say is both have in common is that they both ran on a hard agenda of change.
0: Uh, Obama changed from the past, and Trump, as well, changed from the past. I think that's the one thing. So, um, after eight years of of president obama the american society was ready for change again
1: i mean i think there's so much that goes into that it. it was yeah uh, you know hillary clinton was a pretty poor candidate yeah uh there was tremendous sexism happening mm-hmm. uh, uh the media did a terrible job covering the trump presidency uh, but it was also that you know Hillary Clinton wasn't able to articulate her reason why me why now we never heard why Hillary Clinton was really campaigning mm-hmm. and then of course uh, I don't even want to go into the Russian interference uh, and all those well, that's nice aspects. Thing, so yeah. um, again, Trump won. He's a legitimate president of the United States. I would never call that into question. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there are a number of reasons why he won. I will say though that he was able to address a certain. Uh, a certain aspect and a certain uh, demographic aspect of the country, uh, of course, playing into fear, uh, of course, mobilizing some of the worst fears uh, that mm-hmm. people were having. Um,
0: yeah, and existential, it was a, basic human and, needs, and, and, you know. and
1: it was a effective campaign strategy, mm-hmm.
0: as it turns out. So would you say that, um, I think, personally, what I think is very similar, um, especially from a campaigning standpoint, um, Obama had this big narrative change. Hope, and Trump had this big slogan "Make America Great Again," or still has that slogan. You know, like they both seem to be able to, um, you know, like have a story and connect that story to a certain slogan. Right. So I think they both did a did a good job when it comes to that. I agree. However, I'd add that uh, Trump's narrative
1: um, was always based on grievances. Mm -hmm. That's true. It was always like you know. Look at those migrants, they're taking uh, mm-hmm. something away from you. We yeah. need to build that wall. Look at China and Germany on trade. You know They're ripping us off. You know uh, I'm going to uh, you know, slap sanctions on them. Uh, look at Iran, look at uh, the Paris Climate Accord. You know, mm-hmm. It was always grievance to a certain part of the electorate. Mm-hmm. And then Trump figured out a policy solution to address that. Whereas Barack Obama, it's true, it was also a campaign for change. Uh, but he spoke to what's possible, and uh, the aspirational aspect of politics, it wasn't about the grievances of the past.
0: Yeah. So over the last 12 years, Americans have experienced two characters as their presidents, right. like very strong characters. And today, American politics is polarized, as we already discussed. True. There's a constant fight between Democrats and Republicans, right. um, very similar to an us-versus-them mentality. Um, people tend to not listen to others right. and, and stay within their, um, right. within their circle, black and white thinking, no real po- uh, political progress anymore. Has America become more divided than ever because of those two characters? I mean, I'd argue that American politics
1: has always been, in a sense, pretty divided. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a vast number of reasons for that. One, of course, is gerrymandering. Uh, the way electoral districts and congressional districts are being drawn, right? Right yeah. now, it's a big discussion about how right. to redraw those those districts. And so, I think when you look at the makeup of Congress, for instance, you know, uh, Republicans pretty much uh, dominate white rural areas uh, versus, you know, Democrats are pretty much focused on the cities. So, you have a divide uh, of you know, of course, the West Coast, the East Coast, and everything that's in between. You have a divide between uh, urban and rural. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a divide between uh, you know the South, uh, 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 the Bible Belt, and so on and so forth. So I think there are a lot of divides within the country, um, and you know there are different ways to tackle it. And you see that in the Democratic field of presidential candidates, um, there are governors that say, "Well, we should all come together." Mm-hmm. And we just need a uniter, um, someone right. who brings us all together, right? Right. Let's America has a need for
0: that, I guess. Everybody wants to.
1: Well, of course, we all want to get along. Yeah. Um, but then there are also candidates um, who say, well, um, we have tried for a very long time to bring people together. Mm. Uh, we have tried to work with, and I think in these days it's particularly true, Democrats have tried to work with Republicans for the last 10 years, or last 20 years, mm-hmm. on you know, stricter gun regu- regulation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, frankly, nothing has come from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, these days, we have another mass shooting right. uh, in Ohio right. uh, and, of course, in El Paso, Texas. And, you know, you can talk about it numerous times, well, you know, we need stricter gun record, uh, right. regulation. Um, and in the end, it comes down to an argument, well, it's the Second Amendment, where I'd say, well, the mm-hmm. founding fathers probably didn't have AR-15s. Uh, yeah. and, 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 at uh, least they, they hide, wasn't the purpose hide of, hide of it. Eclipse, uh, in their mind when they uh, yeah. passed the Second Amendment. But at some point, you just need to say, well, we can't work together on this. Uh, Republicans just won't support us on it. And frankly, we got to beat them. That's the only way forward. Mm-hmm. If you want to change gun legislation in the United States, Democrats will need to beat Republicans in the Senate mm-hmm. and the House. And they will need to have a majority in order to pass legislation that actually gets rid of that problems. I mean, the same thing was true for health care. It needed a supermajority in order to be able to get right. the affordable care, um, right. care passed. Uh, the same was true for same-sex marriage you need majorities in order to push legislation especially in a country that is divided as the United States is at this point and especially in a congress that is as
0: jail-mattered as it is right now so looking at the democratic field for the 2020 election from a campaigning expert standpoint who's doing a good job at selling their ideas and convincing the country why me um I'd argue that the question of why me, why now is best addressed
1: by Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, some of you listeners will say, I agree with Elizabeth Warren. I like her, you know, pretty progressive agenda okay. of um, a tax rate um, that is way higher than anything we've seen proposed mm-hmm. in the last uh, 50 years, yeah, sure. um, you know, a, 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 a vast uh, tax uh, increase on, on millionaires and billionaires. Um, but I think if you draw the field. Um, I think you can divide the candidates into two categories. Mm -hmm. The one category I call the incrementalists that say, well, we've come a long way and there's certain things that we need to address. We need to continue to increase the Affordable Care Act, but we should stay in the system as we see it right now. Banks should continue to get regulated. Uh, we should do more for middle class families and Mm -hmm. the incrementalist approach I'd say is taken by a lot of the governors on stage, Mm -hmm. by uh, Joe Biden, Mm -hmm. uh, by Kamala Harris to a certain extent Mm -hmm. and then of course you have the field of radical change. Pretty much who are saying well we need to blow up the system it's Mm -hmm. not working for a majority of the candidates and I'd say that most importantly, Bernie Sanders is in that field. And I say that to a certain extent, Elizabeth Warren is in that field as well. It says, you know, Wall Street is broken. The uh, the uh, uh, our healthcare system is mm-hmm. broken. We need to do away with the Affordable Care Act. I mean, there should just be Medicare for all. And so uh, that's that's the way I think about it mm-hmm. at this point in the primaries: the incrementalist approach, uh, uh, incrementalist approach, and then the fundamental change approach. And that's how I select those candidates. But again. I'd encourage anyone who wants to hear a candidate who has a very concise message and a well uh, uh, thought out uh, message with a strong foundation as Elizabeth Warren. She tells a story how she grew up and how nobody in her family had ever had the opportunity to go to college. Mm -hmm. Um, And she tells that story so consistently. Her biography is so consistently woven into her reason uh, for why she wants to change the country into a certain direction. I'd encourage everyone to 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 watch her announcement video and mm-hmm. I think it's very clear that she
0: has figured out how to answer that question of why me and why now. Well, it still needs to needs to be done a lot. You know, there's still Absolutely. a lot of a lot of candidates running for the Democratic Party. Well, we've had two presidential debates now. Right. Um, and,
1: you know, if you take a look at the uh, the uh, July debate, when you know there's two nights of ten candidates each. Um, now the next debate is going to take place in September, and I'd say that the field is probably going to narrow it down. Mm. Um, I hope it'll narrow down to just one debate, and not two nights of debates, right. just for all of us well, get lost. You get um, lost. You get lost, but I think you can also make two different arguments. One is, of course, you're right. You get lost, but the other one is. It's actually a healthy process for Democrats mm-hmm. to have that broad field because all yeah. those different ideas get flushed out. and You can have the idea of Medicare for all versus an incremental approach. Um, you can have that debate. Um, the other thing is that you have 20 candidates who can all at least do their part in wrestling away the microphone from Donald Trump. now. So far, I don't think that strategy has worked. Um, mm. And I think it's important for the Democratic Party to, you know, flush out that field and get it down to one debate and actually get down to four to six candidates relatively soon. Because right now you still have a bunch of, you know, crazies on that stage right. um, who just don't make a lot of sense or who will never be elected. And I think that just sucks out oxygen mm. from those candidates' revival. So I think... You need to be able to draw it down pretty quickly and I hope that you know soon we'll see Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Beto O'Rourke and maybe Pete Buttigieg on that stage and the rest, you know, while uh, Governor Inslee has a good message on climate change, you know, I don't think there's a, probably a viable chance for him to be the Democratic nominee so they should bow pretty soon. And I think none of those candidates will actually leave the field or
0: quit their presidential campaign but I think relatively soon they'll run out of money and then uh, yeah, the field is going to narrow That's a nice thing. Um, well, we were talking a lot about applying to people's emotions, especially when it comes to politics. And um, There's always this question I ask myself, um, especially when I compare politics right. um, from America to, to Germany. Like um, In America, all the politicians try to really apply it to people's emotions, while here in Germany, it's more about the facts. It's more about what is really going on. It's not about... Um, this uh, big statement or these uh, TV shows and TV battles, it's more it's very different, so what would you say is the ideal way to lead a campaign, apply to people's emotion, or kind of rely on the facts that you deliver? Well, Um, Because you need to have some kind of both The the pun in me would say I uh,
1: fundamentally reject the premise of the question Uh, I I would actually argue that it's not that different Um, You know, when I listen to politicians present their arguments in Germany, mm-hmm. it often is a five-point plan or seven-point plan yeah. or ten-point plan, right? Uh, the Greens will show up and say, well, we have a ten-point plan on combating climate change or, you know, there's a five-point plan on how we deal with the uh, refugee crisis mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, but I think the way you build majorities of support for your cause is not through a five-point plan, you mm-hmm. know? Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. He didn't say, I have a plan. I think the same applies in the United States in the 60s, it applies today in the United States, and the same thing applies in Germany as well. Mm You've got to be able to answer, why me, why now? And I think Mm -hmm. when you look at uh, the Friday's future movement, uh, for instance, Mm -hmm. uh, or some of the people over here in Germany who are, uh, you know, every Friday out there uh, just a couple of meters from where we're sitting right now Mm -hmm. uh, at the uh, Ministry for Transportation, right? They're saying, um, you know, They're not presenting a plan. Right. They're not talking about a 2% or 20% reduction on XYZ. Mm -hmm. They say, you're taking our future away Mm -hmm.
0: by inaction. Which is a really aggressive statement, though. Which is
1: a really aggressive statement, but there is no clear policy. They're not arguing for a carbon tax. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them might support it. Um, Mm -hmm. They're not arguing for getting rid of every uh, fossil fuel engine. Um, Yeah. I think some of them support So German,
0: German politics needs to have it a little bit the American way. Like They need to kind of adapt to yeah. what Americans are doing.
1: I think you need to figure out how to connect with an audience. I think you always right. do it through emotion. Right. I don't think you should do it through fear. Mm-hmm. But I do think you need to get people's attention. And so you need to be able to frame your message in a way that connects with people. And again, who speaks to their interests. And nobody cares or gives a damn about a five-point plan. right? So figure that out. Figure out where people are susceptible to uh, hearing your message. And I right. think Fridays for Future has figured that out. Uh, I think it's gone so far that some of the very conservative politicians who have always been uh, for the big auto industry, mm-hmm. uh, for the energy companies, who have heard you know, that there's a strong call for change and who are actually... Uh, faltering in their uh, in their in their support against it. So um, again, I'd say that Germany is pretty similar in the way that communication works, and that I'd say that it's not an American thing or a European thing or Chinese or Russian thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's basic emotions that pretty much unite all of us, and it's pretty much the same
0: wherever you go on this globe. Well, you worked, you experienced it um, both. Both ways, kind of, because right. you worked eight years for President Obama, and then you came back to Germany and worked, I worked for both um, of his campaigns. But, but yeah, right, and then and then and then you worked for a German political party. That's true. Is that um, so? Where are some differences? Well, I mean,
1: again, I, I work all, all across Europe in, in political campaigns and in the United States, and mm-hmm. you know, obviously, you know, we look at all different type of campaigns, and I think it's always the same case. Can you tell a compelling story that addresses people's basic needs? Um, within that story, of course, you need to deliver answers uh, on right. how to actually do it legislatively. Right. Uh, but in the beginning, um, you know, whether you campaign for the climate um, or you campaign for human rights or whatever it might be for a candidate. You need to address the question,
0: why me, why now? Does It just doesn't mm-hmm. go beyond that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I can imagine that also it's a resource thing. Uh, just the way, like, how much politicians spent in America for getting their name out there is probably very, very different. Of course. I mean, if you look at the presidential campaign... In um,
1: uh, 2012, Mm. the Obama campaign spent a billion, a billion with a B, right? you compare that to the Social Democrats or the Conservatives over here in in Germany, um, you know, they spent about 25 million euros uh, compared to the billion dollars. Um, There are about uh, 220 million eligible voters in the United States, there are about Mm. 61 million eligible voters in Germany. So yes, there are more people to address, uh, but again, you have exponentially more resources at the same time, I argue that in 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton spent uh, $1.3 billion, um, Donald wow. Trump spent $800 million. So he spent way less, but was able to win the election. So it's not just money. Yeah. Um, and I'd also argue that, when, and I mentioned this earlier, when we started with the Obama campaign, we had absolutely zero resources. Right. right? We had passion, we had a message, we right. had what addressed that moment of that time. And so I'd argue that, yes, at some point you need money. You can't just put a message online anymore on Facebook and we'll just get shared. Um, you know, the way the algorithm uh, algorithms work, you actually need to put money behind it mm. in order to get your message out and to get out of your own circle <coughs> and your own filter bubble. But if you don't have a message, all the money in the world is not gonna help you. Um,
0: I'd say just ask Hillary Clinton, she experienced it first. <laughs> she probably she probably knows. Well that's that's crazy. Where does all this money go to? I mean that's we're talking one billion Billion US dollars, right? Like, I don't know what. I mean. Keep in mind, it's a big country. Yeah, exactly. You know, but where, where does all jump? the money go to? You know. Like,
1: well, the fifteen battleground states. Yeah. Um, of course, a lot of that money goes into fundraising in yeah. order to. Uh, you know make out a little money more money mm-hmm. um, that's of course true uh, travel takes up tremendous resources I and mean, all those stages you see they need to get built um, mm-hmm. you need security you need all those different things but the vast right. majority of course goes still into TV advertisement oh. uh, and now more and more into digital advertisement um, you know what Trump uh, of what some of the Democrats spent on Google ads on Facebook ads is tremendous at this point and so you know you, I'd encourage everyone to go to opensecrets.org um, mm-hmm. which is a site that tracks every campaign spending and you can very much see you know how much money did they spend on travel how much money did they spend on staff how much money did they spend on TV um, and I think it becomes very clear also keep in mind um, it takes organization I mentioned that on the Obama campaign we had 3,500 people on staff uh, in 2008, we had 5,000 people, which is insane. People, and which is insane. Million, yeah. We had 5,000 people on staff in 2012. You know, Elizabeth Warren, all those candidates are staffing up in Iowa right now. So, you know, they're able to pull in $25 million in this quarter uh, in donations. But a lot of that money gets not just put on TV or, or, or Facebook ads, but also invested into staff because mm-hmm. right now, People are going from door to door in Iowa talking to their neighbors about, you know, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or other candidates, Joe Biden. Uh, and that takes
0: money. And that takes, you know, money to build that infrastructure. Well, I can imagine you, you've got to be very, very passionate and very brave to knock on those doors. And, oh, uh, right, especially right now in America and, right. and, and and be like, hey, let's talk about politics. Because right. I think, like, the people are kind of over it, right? Well, I mean... I think you could infer
1: that from the political discourse that people are over it. At the same time I'd also say that, you know, it is such a critical time and politicians always say that in an election. This is the most important election of my yeah. lifetime, right? You, yeah. know, you heard that sentence For every sure. four yeah, years. Every year, yeah. It's a I'd say this time it's really true. I mean mm-hmm. I'd say that in two thousand eight that statement was true, but right now, you know, from and of course I consider myself a Democrat. Um, okay. Uh, but uh, well, I don't consider myself. I you know supported Democrats ever since I can remember. But I'd say it's important for Democrats to win this election. Mm-hmm. You know, the damage that Donald Trump was able to do in those first four years, uh, by appointing judges, uh, by you know legislation, by the harm that he caused on the border. Uh, that he pulled out of the Paris Climate change, uh, Court. Uh, mm. That he was. Uh, uh, that he pulled Abel out of the Iran nuclear deal. I mean, there's so many things that happened. Um, I do think that the structures that the government is pretty robust and can withstand Donald Trump in the way that uh, he's affected uh, government as a whole. But uh, again, so far the president has not been tested in a real manner. I don't want to imagine what would happen if Donald Trump was facing. The same crisis that Barack Obama was facing when he took office, right. the financial crisis. Right. I don't want to imagine what would happen if a 9 11 scenario would happen during a Donald Trump presidency, mm. right? So, you know, I'm grateful that we've gone through those three years so far without Donald Trump being majorly tested. Mm. Um, but I hope that, you know, Democrats will be able to get rid of Trump. Um, And put someone in in charge who is reasonable. And I think there's some Democrats on stage who are not 100% reasonable, um, but there's still every one of those, or most of those, are better than Trump. And so uh, I do think a lot of it's at stake, and it's absolutely critical that Democrats won that election, even though from a system perspective, it's going to be tough for Democrats to beat Trump in this election.
0: Well, we're going to see who's who's going to be able to figure out. why me and why now <laughs> we learned that from today at completely different topic now right. it starts strip stories here we're trying to um talk a little bit about, about failure hardship right. um issues um that our guests had over their life experience over their life i think that um failures seen in society as negatively right. And uh, I hear oftentimes that people who failed or had hardships are losers kind of and it really isn't that way You know, like it it really can be an opportunity, you know, like another door can open Um, Did you have any um, failures hardships um, where you learned something from it where you developed uh, something out of it and uh, How did that work for you? well I mean, I told you
1: on the top of an interview that, um, you know, my plan was to become a professional basketball player Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, I was hoping and aspiring to go to the NBA, um, but at least I wanted to come back to Europe and play professional here. I mean, that was was what I'd worked for ever since I was a young kid, uh, going Mm -hmm. to the gym, just like you, twice a day, um, you know, lifting weights, running and everything. And so after I tore my ACL for the third time and you know doctors said you know give it up you're not going to play again mm-hmm. at least on that level you know that was um you know that was hardship right it was devastating right um and as you mentioned you know we called a crisis opportunity, right a crisis and mm-hmm. an opportunity um you know without that torn ACL I probably would have never studied as rigorously as I have right. after that. Right. Uh, I would have never been able to, or I would have probably never entered, uh, you know, politics, um, mm-hmm. or at least gotten to work on a historical campaign, um, mm-hmm. uh, the Obama campaign. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, while that one uh, window closed itself um, of professional sports, you right. know, another one opened, and boy I'm glad that where I am today, mm-hmm. uh, which. You know, if you had told me back then, you know, I would have just shook my head and said, mm-hmm. well, I want to play basketball. Well, you're, you're going to work for Barack Obama one day. <laughs> exactly. And so, um, you know, the idea that, you know, failures are part of life, I think is uncontested. Mm-hmm. We all go through them. The idea that always something great comes from it. You know, sometimes things are just bad mm-hmm. and nothing great will come from it. Uh, I I do believe that as well but I think it depends on a general outlook on life whether you're open for new things you know I could have crawled up you know in your setbacks and anyone who's listening uh, had his or her setbacks and I think it's a question of you know how you come out of it what kind of attitude do you have Um, and you know I think it's okay to curl up and and, you know just be devastated I was um, and you know after a certain time either you Able to do it by yourself, um, or you find help, Mm. Um, uh, you have loved ones around you, or you know, someone who can support you, uh, you know, get back uh, and and, and try to make something from it. And um, you know, I don't know what possibly I could have learned from a torn ACL, um, but maybe some
0: medical facts, but (laughs) you know, I could
1: have maybe, yeah, gotten medical (laughs) expertise, but um, there was no true learning, but um, you know. What I learned from the first couple of ACL injuries—the hard work and that you actually can come back—you uh, know—that's mm-hmm. given me strength to, you know, push through an all-nighter, uh, yeah. or you know, push myself harder in order to figure out whatever I need to be able to figure mm-hmm. out. And so, yes, you can learn something from most experience, uh, but again, I think it's your overall outlook on life, uh, how you deal with it, and they you know, in a team sport, you go out and you ask your teammates your coaches for help and that you're able to you know, get back um, get back I think that's the overall thing
0: that's true I think um, that's a perfect point to wrap it up the whole interview really mm-hmm. wise words um, coming from me here um, thank you Julius <laughs> for being on the show it was a well, pleasure talking to, to you Stars um, and stripes Stories that's a, great, that's a great title <laughs> it is yeah, that's like, a great it connects the Ameri- yes. it has the kind of the American connection well guys you heard it for him. Please make sure you follow us on Instagram, Facebook. You find us there under Stripe Stories. Thanks again for tuning in and I hear you guys next time. Thanks so much.